Well, good morning. Are you ready for this? I, uh, I, I was joking, one of our elders was joking a couple weeks ago and said, uh, you know, I don't know how Chris could take five verses and turn it into a 45-minute sermon. And this, this week I was like, it's only five verses. I literally said that at sermon group. And then I'm like, man, I don't even know if I can do it justice. I don't even know if we have enough time to actually dig into this. But we're going to do the best that we can. So we're going to be in Matthew 18. I'm going to invite Pam to come up here and uh, read the text for us. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If you guys want to turn there and read with us, why don't you stand and let's read this passage. Good morning. My name is Pam McMillan, and my husband Kevin and I are part of the local missions team, and it is my honor and privilege to read the word to all of us this morning. Um, and so it's Matthew 18, 18 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he, doesn't, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Pray before we get started. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I'm just grateful this morning, even as we sing that song about your breath in our lungs. Lord, we're reminded that the only reason we're standing here this morning is because you purposed for us too. And so I pray, Jesus, that this morning we would not take this time for granted. We would realize the power um, and just the, the amazing nature of your church, Lord. What an amazing thing to be gathered with your people around your word, Lord, to make much of your name. And so we give you this time this morning. We pray that you would bless it and you would anoint it, that your spirit would move through it in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So, Matthew 18, how many of you, uh, once Pam started reading that verse, were like squirming, like, I gotta get out of here. Like, <laughs> this is not the passages I want to hear about. Um, again, we're diving into another hefty section of text this morning. I talked last week about the fact that as we work through 18, there's some heavy stuff to deal with. We're going to deal with conflict resolution this morning and restoration. Uh, in a couple weeks, we'll deal with divorce. And uh, there's just some serious things that Jesus is getting into in this section of Scripture. Keep in mind, at this time, Jesus is still training his disciples. He's spending time with them. But the last couple sections of, of Scripture shifted a little bit because Jesus begins to sort of talk about family business, Right? Um, you guys know how there's things that you, when you have friends over and there's like issues that come up that you have to deal with the family and you just kind of say to the family, like, we'll deal with this later. And once the friends leave, it's like, all right, it's time to settle brass tacks. Like, we're going to deal with the family business. Like, it only, it only is for the family. And so this is where Jesus is at. He's dealing with the disciples. He's, he's referring to believers in this section. He's not talking about people outside of the body of Christ. So in Matthew 18... Again, Jesus is literally dealing with family business. And we talked last week about the nature of Jesus sort of inaugurating 
uh, this upside down kingdom where he says that the greatest is the least and the least is the greatest, that the first is the last and the last is the first. And that if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. It's this upside down kingdom that Jesus continues to try to explain as best he can for his, to his disciples. But this is some of the family business stuff. And so we talked about in verse 7, a couple weeks ago, or last week, that there's this concern for what Jesus calls, he refers to as stumbling blocks, right? Which would be anything or anyone that would hinder us in the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews says something super similar. He says that we should set aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. And so he's cautioning those who are around his, his disciples um, on the seriousness of stumbling blocks because both people in your life that would trip you up as well as things in your life that could become a stumbling block. I talked last week about um, imagining the story of two guys walking alongside one another, two disciples, and one of them's just throwing rocks in front of the other one, deliberately trying to stumble the person, to, to trip him up. And so imagine that this is what's happening. This is what Jesus is sort of calling out. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus gets pretty serious about this. And he says that if something causes you to stumble, then you should cut it off or you should pluck your eye out. You should pluck it out, which sounds like pretty serious verbiage from Jesus. And I'm thankful that that passage is not literal because if it was literal, we'd be like this whole group of dismembered people sitting here this morning, right? Because who of us hasn't been guilty at some point in needing to cut off our hand or pluck out our eye? Like we, if it wasn't for the grace the redemption of Jesus, then how would we be? Um, Luckily, he's not talking about this literally, but what he's saying is that there's a seriousness about sin. There's a seriousness that Jesus, when he refers to sin, um, and and that that, that sin might be around us, that sin may even be be in us, but that Jesus desires to actually deal with it, and that whatever we see, we need to do uh, whatever we see in us and that we need to do in order to get rid of it, we need to just get rid of it. The Puritan said that you, you identify sin and you uproot it viciously, that you take it seriously. You, it's not something you just kind of let linger in your life, but it's something you address and you take to the Lord. And so we need to not play games with the sin that's in our life to the degree that if you see something in your life that's contrary to the word of God, that's not in keeping with the gospel, that's not evidencing this faith that we claim to hold on to, we need to be serious enough about it to say like, get that out of my life because that thing is a stumbling block for me. That thing is keeping me from reflecting the image of Jesus. And so with all of this, again, Jesus is addressing serious family business. This is Jesus huddling up with his disciples and sort of saying, this is what it looks like, guys, to live within community. This is what it looks like to do life together. This is what personal pursuit of Jesus looks like. However, in in verses 12 through 14, it's not just about you singularly. It's about us plurally. It's about the church Because the real heart of God in verses 12 through 14, as we saw last week, was to seek and save that which is lost, right? That he would literally leave the 99 that are in good care 
to go passionately pursue the one that's straying away from the truth. And so that his whole hope was that he could bring them back, that they would come back into the fold. It wasn't to kick them out, to leave them out. It was with the hopes of going after them to bring them back. He was leaving the 99 to get the one, to bring the one back into, um, uh, to restore uh, the one back to the fold. But the question for us then is like, why? Like, why is God so committed to the sense of removing stumbling blocks? Why is he so committed to removing anything that would entangle us? Why is he so committed to the sense of us even doing life together? And and I would argue that we, as a collective, are something very special to the Lord. Very special to the Lord. That's that's what, what makes us special is the fact that we are the body of Christ, right? Like, we we are the apple of his eye. We are the local church. We are the family of God. And so we're called to pursue Christ together. That's who we are. That's what makes us special. We're not individual Christians alone. We're actually plural Christians in this together. And so together we form this thing called the body of Christ. Now, faith in and of itself is a personal decision. So we, we don't like all get grafted in just because we share the, the same last name or just because it's in our blood or just because we wore the right jersey on game night. We get grafted in because of, of a profession of faith as an individual in Jesus Christ as the only one that could save us. We're grafted into this family of God based on that profession of faith as an individual. But clearly, like in John chapter one, Jesus says, to as many as received him, he says, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If you received him, you become a child of God. You become part of this body. And so there's the sense that each and every one of us ha- has to have this moment of clarity in our lives where as an individual we profess faith in Jesus to follow after him. But what we realize is that in our profession of faith and our turning repentance, turning from something to Jesus, acknowledging him as our Lord and Savior, that as you're grafted in, this isn't just like a singular journey for you. It's not an isolated thing just for you. You actually become part of the body of Christ. This is a group effort. It's a collective that Jesus has brought us into, a family that he's brought us into. And this concept of our faith being both personal and private is sort of a modern-day fallacy in the midst of this world that we live in nowadays who is all about isolation, all about individualism. Sometimes that bleeds over into our faith. And it's actually nonsense that we would believe that we maintain our individualism as we become part of this body of Christ. Like, what we actually do is bring our individualism together And then in plurality, we form this thing called the body of Christ. Like it's a bunch of individuals as a collective make up the body of Christ. And so we are ambassadors of Christ, but together. Does that make sense? We're we're in this together. We're the church together. We're the body of Christ together. We, We literally put the gospel on display in the world together. And so there's this sense that we as the body together is what Jesus actually intended. Like this was his plan. And yet... If we're to be honest this morning, it's not always pretty, is it? This whole thing about the body of Christ and the church doesn't always pan out pretty. It doesn't always work out super awesome. And just like the pursuit of Jesus, like wouldn't it be great if we came to faith and all the junk that, that, that you used to participate in and that 
was with you just like fell away and you were just perfect and you could walk in that. Like that's just not the case. We know that there's things that we bring with us. Like we give our lives to Jesus. We come to him in faith. He cleanses us and he makes us righteous. But some of us are still holding on to things that we brought with us from the past life, aren't we? And in that, what we know is that sin still exists on this earth. Like, even as the body of Christ, sin is still rampant. Like, we're still dabbling in it. We're still struggling with it. And so when sin comes into the church, into the body of Christ, now there's these divisions that start to happen in between individuals that Jesus was the one bringing together to unite. Sin comes in and it starts to wreak havoc. It starts to divide. This is when Jesus starts to get super serious about stumbling blocks and sin because in Jesus' eyes, the thing that he paid the price for now has something in between it, like the reconciliation of belief, the unity of the body. Like he paid the ultimate price for that, but now you have sin coming in and it's dividing people. And instead of Christians actually trying to figure out what is the proper process to go through to reconcile, we allow that division to run rampant and destroy relationships and in essence destroy churches. This is what Jesus is getting at, and it's very serious to him. One minute, some of us feel like we're like doing just fine in life. And um, I don't know if you're like me, but it's like one minute you're doing okay, and then all of the sudden there's this, there's this setback and you're like kicked off the horse and then you gotta get back on the horse and it's just like you do this dance even in your relationship with Jesus but the beauty of it is that actually when those moments come, when you feel like there's a setback, when sin kind of gets in the way and it, it pushes us back um, and I'm sure they come in your life because they come in mine, I hope that, that we sense a, a sense of conviction in the midst of those seasons like the Lord is really telling us like, hey, get your eyes back on the right thing. Like this last week, I can name numerous things that I did, like wrongs I did, like either ways I talked to people, frustration that brewed in me, um, temptations with my eyes. Like let's go down the list of the things that uh, I've dealt with in the last week and I don't know what yours are if you're to lay them out, but I would say when we look at those setbacks in our last week, and we realize, man, that really got in the way, that really got in the way, that really got in the way, that really got in the way. Well, as a follower of Jesus, what do we do with that? And what I realized is that if this last week, if I talked wrongly to my wife, my first responsibility is to repent and go back to my wife and deal with my sin in the name of Jesus. And so as believers, we should be a people that, that sense the Lord telling us to go clean something up, like to, to go confess to the Lord, to go back to the people that we offended, to confess to them, to pray for restoration and pray for the Lord to bring you back together. That's when things tend to be working well. That's the beauty of the gospel is when we're humble enough to address those issues in our life. And the gospel in and of itself doesn't just save us, it actually continues to transform us and it gives us opportunities, like not if we sin, but when we sin, right? It gives us opportunities to come back together, like that's the power of the gospel of Jesus. But what about the times in your life when you're not aware of the problem that you have? 
You can't see it. That issue is in your blind spot, and others see it, but you never see it. Have you ever been to lunch with somebody, and while they're sitting there eating, you know, they've got like a big piece of lettuce or something on their tooth, and you're just like, oh, do I say something? Do I let this go? Like this last week, I was with a pastor friend of mine in Spokane, and um, we were having coffee, and we were in the midst of this pretty heavy discussion. He's like pouring his heart out, and this stink bug lands on his head. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, it was like the OCD in me is like, what do I do? You know, like I hit that thing off. Like, do I tell him it's on there? Like, can't go on like this. You know, you got to get that, that stinky thing off. And, um, and it was like a demon, you know, it's like poached up on his head. It's like looking at me the whole time. Like, yeah, you know, I, I know this is just like messing with you inside. And I'm just like, what do I do? And I like went 10 minutes. The thing did not leave. I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Finally, I'm like, bro, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I got to hit this thing off. Like, it's been on your head forever, you know? Which then he's like, why don't you tell me earlier? Well, I was afraid, you know, you were in the middle of like pouring out your heart. But so often in life, we, we have these things. We've got a piece of lettuce on our tooth. We've got the stink bug on our head and everybody else sees it but us. And what do we hope that people would do? Say something. Say something. And the same is true with our walk with Jesus. Like, there, there are three primary means by which God transforms us, right? One, God transforms us through his word. This is why we talk about scripture so often, you guys. The, the Bible is not a book that you just open to read to do your Christian duties for the week. The Bible is not just another book. It doesn't just lack power. It doesn't lack authority. It's not just something you read for the fun of it. There's actually power in the Bible. When we open up the scriptures, we're literally allowing that thing to examine our heart and our lives. That thing has the ability to encourage our souls. That thing has the ability to challenge us and to convict us. There's something so powerful about the word. That's why we encourage you to go read the Bible, not because we need you to get through the Bible in a year, but we believe there's power in it. And so the three primary means that God uses to transform us, his word, um, second, his Holy Spirit, right? When God begins to put things on your heart and challenge your actions or your words, like the Spirit calls us into obedience to listen to the Lord. Like the Spirit calls us towards Jesus. It, it lets us know if there's things in our life that need to be addressed and it, it, it gives us a path forward in addressing those things. Like repentance happens by his Spirit as we humbly put ourselves before the Lord and acknowledge our fault and our error and ask for his forgiveness. The third thing, so it's God's word um, transforms us, his spirit transforms us, and the last one is one that we don't often like. And it's the fact that God uses God's people to transform us. People are literally put in your life for those areas in your life that are blind spots to you. Um, people to point out the food on your teeth and the stink bugs on your head. Like God's people are literally used to help us see things that we cannot see ourselves. My wife used to drive a, a Honda Element. I don't know if anybody here has ever driven one of those. It, is, it has one of the worst blind spots in any car you'll ever own. Like there's just this massive section of body in between two windows. And every time you change lanes in it, you're just like fearing for your life because chances are there's a car right there and you're gonna hit it. And life is like that. We've got blind spots. Each of you have a blind spot. 
Blind spots are there strategically so that you can't notice them. But God's word and God's spirit and God's people see the things that you can't see. So welcome to Matthew 18, right? (laughs) I think this is one of the most overlooked and ignored and misapplied, misunderstood passages. Um, And I think it's often botched. Like more people have been hurt by this passage than maybe any other because we try so hard to apply it, but we try to apply it in a way that's very forceful and mechanical and not led by his spirit in the heart that Jesus is after. I'm gonna preface this whole thing by saying the whole foundation of this text is love and concern for others from Jesus. That's his concern. More, More people have misinterpreted this passage and used it over people. And the core of this passage is asking and answering the question, like what's the most loving thing to do when you see somebody's blind spot? What's the most loving thing to do? The most loving thing to do when you see someone's blind spot regarding sin is to go, hey, I'm not sure if you noticed this or not, but um, I, you know, I see a pattern. There, there's some lettuce on your teeth and your lettuce on your life, and, uh, and it needs to be addressed, you know? And I love you enough to come to you and show you this because my hope isn't to slam you or discipline you. My hope is that you would be transformed into the likeness of the image of Jesus. And when we do that, we're not just talking about them. Like, I hope we never approach those situations in such a way where it's like, I'm here to tell you what you did wrong. Because the reality is, is that we each have something that we're doing wrong. So likewise, that's relationship. That's community. Is trusting people enough to invite them into your messes, to be able to call each other out sometimes, to be able to walk through hard things together. And this passage, sometimes practicing it can get a little wonky. Um, Some of you have maybe even been on the other side of this passage where um, maybe you were part of a church or um, maybe you thought at times the way that you saw this you didn't see this passage exercised in a church that you thought, like, does this church even care about holiness? Like, maybe you had a spouse that left you at some point, and nobody in the church said anything at all to that spouse that was leaving his spouse or her spouse. But both extremes in this scenario can be totally devastating. And so what does this text say? Starting in verse 15, he says this. If your brother, and this translates to sister as well, if your brother or sister sins against you. So we can also agree that um, it's not if they sin against you, but it's when they sin against you because this is gonna happen. It's not like you came to Christ and you never sinned anymore. It's like when a brother or sister sins, what's the process that we use? When they sin, what's the process we use? And I wish we were all made perfect in Christ and didn't have to deal with this, but this side of death, this side of heaven, this side of the return of Jesus, we actually need to get used to doing this because this is the normal ebb and flow of family business. Like, this should be being done way more in the church today than it actually is. This is what ought to be happening in the household of God. And that's the process. But by the way, if your brother or sister sins, 
Um, and this is not just some random person that's sinning that you're going to go call out. This is literally referring to a brother or sister, which means that there's, it's like a familial entity. It's somebody who you're close to. There's prior relationship then. We are adopted into the family of God. So it's referring to believers. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is not sort of a qualifier um, for relational familiarity. So this passage does not say, okay, here's the correction process for those people you, 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 you really know, and then here's the correction process for the people that you don't really know. Uh, it doesn't sort of make that distinction. It says if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then we're all brothers and sisters. And if we're brothers and sisters and we've got something in our teeth, the most loving thing to do is go, hey, have you ever noticed that? So that if your brother sins, then you have a process that the scripture calls you to follow in order to pursue Jesus through this. So um, quick side note, one of the like, frustrating things for me is when um, Christians hold non-Christians by biblical standards as well. Like you take this and you try to exercise Matthew 18 on somebody who's not even a follower of Jesus. Like that doesn't, doesn't even make sense. Somebody who isn't following Jesus, who's unregenerate, doesn't know the Lord, it doesn't even make sense to try to overlay this passage because it's his spirit that's doing the uniting. It's God that's bringing the two together. So to try to do that with somebody who's not a believer does not make sense. And we do that so often in our culture where we as Christians want unbelievers to live like us, act like us, talk like us, and do the things we do. But their hearts are not changed. They're not transformed. Why would we hold Christian values or morals over somebody who does not know Jesus? So um, this is what the process should look like. And, and if, if, if we need to keep in mind that the reason you even need to have these conversations, if your brother or sister sins, is because we were actually set free from our old life. I mean, I will remind you this morning, like Jesus paid the ultimate price to set you free. You have been given new life in Jesus, but old habits, again, are hard to break. And so we need to recognize that if we are in Christ, we should look different. And so if you're like keg standing or like beer bonging as a non-believer, and then you come to know Jesus, and then the next week you're like keg standing and beer bonging, we would have like a real theological dilemma, right? We'd be like, ah, that's not right. You know, like, I hope that things would change as you gave your life to Jesus, like, you probably should do away with the keg stands and the beer bongs, Right? Somebody came up to me in the service and said, so we can't keg stand anymore? I was like, we could do it with root beer. We just can't do it with beer, you know? Like, it's totally cool. But when we're submitted to the gospel, the gospel continues to change us. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things pass away and the new has come. And that doesn't mean perfection, but what it means is that we're moving that way. We're becoming more and more like Jesus. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. He says, now listen to this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. And I want you to lock this section away in your head for something we're going to talk about at the end. Verse 21, 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen? Amen. This is the assumption of what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ, that the gospel saves us and the gospel is still transforming us. And so that being said, sometimes we're just flat out blind to our sin. Like sometimes there are old habits that are hard to break and old patterns that keep coming back. And so verse 15 continues, if your brother or sister sins against you, it says, go and tell him his fault. And I know what some of us would think when we read that, like who in their right mind goes and shows somebody their fault? Like, I don't want to have to do that. Like, are you actually suggesting that part of the Christian life is that I as a Christian, if I see somebody who's in sin, am supposed to go to that person and show them their fault? And most people would say, heck no, no way, not a chance. Like, I'm not doing that. And if you're thinking that, Again, you're certainly not alone because I think the majority of the church sort of thinks this way. A lot of people say like, well, it's just not my responsibility to do that. That, That's not who I am. I'm not gonna get involved with that. That's none of my business. That's theirs. But here's the problem with that way of thinking. If that's the case, then when do we ever help someone who's living, leading a lifestyle that's heading for destruction? When do you step in? Do you never step in? Do you never show love to your brother or your sister out of concern for their life to help get them restored and back on track? Like, when do we ever step in as a body and go, dude, do you ever notice that you have that thing on your teeth? Because by the time we, we sort of get to them, the matter probably has escalated and it ends up with the elders of the church and it's now become this big thing. And the problem with this is that by the time it ends up with the elders, it's not just like a one, two, or three time issue. It's probably like an eight, nine, or 10 time issue, which means that it's like potentially at a place, uh, I don't wanna say beyond repair, but a place where it's gonna be very difficult to repair it after it's escalated that far because the body of Christ was too afraid to actually be the body of Christ. And so by the time it gets to the elders of the church, like we as elders start asking like, who's in their community? Who's the list of people that, that, are, that are close to them? Who are, who are they relationally connected to? And so we start wondering like, where are those people were at through the process? Like if we go back to Matthew 18, you should have gone to the one first. Why didn't we start there? And now matters have got out of hand and now we need like the church to step in, which we'll get to in a little bit. Back up, if you look at verses 12 through 14, um, what's the heart of God in that whole section? His whole heart is to leave the ones that are faithful, go find the ones who are straying and love them enough to go, dude, you have no idea what you're doing right now and I love you enough to warn you and share with you what I see and get you to come back because you're about to get crushed. And I really hope these conversations are rare Because I hope that as a church, we're sort of building this culture where we already live sort of authentically and humbly before God. And so when I read my Bible and it's talking about how I should treat my wife and then I go and like pop off to her or raise my voice, we should be a people that immediately respond as the Spirit leads within us. We sense the Lord asking us to go make that right. Something happens between brother and sister, brother, brother, 
sister, sister, brother, sister, whatever in the church, it's like we should be the ones that acknowledge the fact that something is wrong and I should go make that right. I should be the one to put the first step forward to go fix that and allow Jesus to heal that relationship. I hope that's the culture that we're trying to create. But you would think that these, common, these kind of conversations would be commonplace in the church, and yet people run from them all the time. And you'd think we'd be more familiar and comfortable with this. There's a number of reasons why I think that we run from these conversations. I'm going to give you four. One, um, oftentimes I think that we misunderstand the nature of our faith. So we, we think it's none of your business. It's actually personal and it's private. And so this is my faith. You have your faith. And so in a sense, we don't speak into each other's lives because it has nothing to do with you. Like, I have my relationship with Jesus. You have your relationship with Jesus. We gather together once a week to sing songs and worship him and study his word together. Um, but it's really about me. It's my own individual, individual walk with the Lord. And I would actually suggest this morning that we represent Christ together, that the body of Christ is a body. It's not just a body part, it's actually the whole body. And so the beauty of the body is that we're together. Like it's personal, but it's not private, right? Second is that we have this fear of being judgmental. And it's real. Like, who am I to say anything to anybody because I've got my own issues? And then even in light of like Matthew 7, Jesus says, judge not that you be judged. And so Jesus said it. And so why would I judge anyone? Who am I to judge? Because I've got my own stuff. But the reality is that you probably stopped a little short in that passage because Jesus goes on to say, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So does Jesus say don't judge? Or don't change the boundaries? Like don't change the goalposts? Like if you're gonna hold somebody accountable for something, then you too need to be held accountable for that same standard. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But what we say is like, I don't wanna be judgmental, as if, the, the most loving thing to do is to just never say anything at all. And I actually think that there's a better way. Third thing is that sometimes we don't want to be held accountable ourselves. We're afraid to address something with somebody else because in that addressing of something with somebody else, it's sort of an invitation for them to address it with me. So I won't say anything because I'm afraid that they're going to think now they can say something to me, so I won't say anything at all. Seriously, that becomes... That handicaps the church so gnarly. If we all sit back and never say anything because we're afraid of what they'll say to us, we should be the ones inviting others. Do you see my blind spots? Like, how can you help me in this walk with Jesus? Like, I want to be strengthened. I want to be renewed. I want to be strong in my walk with him. I want to continue fighting the fight and running the race that he's called me to. We shouldn't be a people that cower from people like actually examining our life and seeing things that might be blind spots in us. Fourth, is that oftentimes people are like, look, I'm, I'm not gonna throw stones in a glass house. Like I have my own issues and I'm too busy working on my own issues to step into somebody else's. To which I would say, does anybody in here not have any issues right now? Not one. We've all always got issues. And if our issues are the things prohibiting us from being obedient to what Jesus has asked us to do, then we will never do anything at all. We need to do something. And Jesus is inviting believers to actually practice family business in having these conversations. 
Um, also, I think that we have a fear of ruining friendships, hurting friendships. Like our assumption is that it'll be awkward and people won't like us anymore. And the reality is that a person may distance themselves from us, but Proverbs tells us what? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, is what Proverbs says. Like if you're not willing to have those kind of conversations, I would ask you what kind of friendship it is to begin with. Is it a real friendship? You know, I, I realized I, I came to faith in Jesus at 17 years old. And it was this crazy summer for me. Like, gave my life to Jesus in like April of my senior year of high school. Um, when I, I had this whole group of people that I considered friends, but really what I realized what, was what made them friends was we all like to do a lot of fun stuff together. It wasn't real friendship. And then I gave my life to Jesus and I spent a summer alone. Like, I remember sitting out, on, um, out in the yard at my parents' house at like 11 or 12 at night, and I'm like a super social kid. And I remember looking up in the stars being like, Jesus, is this what it means? Like, I choose to give my life to you, serve you, follow you, like I'm, I'm down to do it, but it means that I've walked away from all of these friends that I had and I literally have nobody. And in the months to come after that, he surrounded me with some of the best friendships that still I have to this day. And those friendships weren't founded on how much fun we could have together. Those friendships were founded on fun. They were founded on the fact that we could have real conversations. We could call out each other's blind spots. The fact that we will be there with our, each other's families through thick and thin. The fact that we will pray for one another. The fact that we want to see one another end the race well and finish strong. Those are true friendships. And those kind of friendships you're not worried about like, oh, I don't want to offend him. I don't know if I should say that because I might lose his friendship. Those kind of friendships, you step into those situations and you go, dude, brother, like, I'm seeing something. Like, I know you well enough to know that, like, this is, this is not a good path. And I've had those hard, hard conversations with some of these very good friends. And I think that when you really enter into true community with people, it actually like deepens your friendships. It doesn't distance your friendships, it deepens your friendships. And so if, if it distances your friendship, it probably wasn't a friendship at all to begin with. And the reality of all this is that it's not a game. And that's what I hope you guys can see this morning is that this is life and this is actually death. It's wreaking havoc on people's hearts and people's souls and people's emotional state because when you're talking about sin, it's serious to Jesus. And you realize that if you don't say anything, it leads to death. I mean, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. James 1 says, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Proverbs 24.11 says, rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Like, that's what we should do. That's family business. That's what we're invited into. And so if you love them, then you'll show up and have the conversation. If you love them, you'll talk to them. You'll speak up. Verse 15 continues, if your brother sins... Go and tell him his fault between what? You and him alone, that's what it says. Go to your brother, tell him his fault between you and him alone, which is really, I think, Jesus' way of saying, keep it off Facebook. <laughs> Not necessary to post this on Instagram. Like, brother to brother, go have this conversation. And the, uh, the other idea of this is that you actually have to show up in person to have these conversations. You can't text this kind of conversation. 
You can't email this kind of conversation. You can't have a phone call with this kind of conversation. This kind of family business and this conversation doesn't happen digitally. It happens face-to-face because you have to see the love and the concern in somebody's eyes as you're talking to them. That's brotherhood and sisterhood. And then the other thing is that you got to make sure that whatever it is you're bringing to them is actually biblically grounded. This isn't about bringing your opinions and your ideas to the person. This is about does something not line up with Scripture in the way that they're dealing with X or the way they're living X, whatever it is, is it something that's grounded on Scripture that you come to them and say, your life, there's some discrepancies here. As a follower of Jesus, this is like, I just had this conversation with somebody two days ago. I saw him post something on Instagram that was like so mean. And I literally, like I know this person so well. I messaged him right away. I said, dude, um, what you just said is one of the most hateful things I've heard all week. That's not becoming of a follower of Jesus. And he replied back to me and he said, you're right. I probably shouldn't have posted that. I got into the heat of the moment and just fired it out. Like, these are the relationships that we get to have where we can challenge one another and actually talk through hard things and actually allow people to see our blind spots. And so the loving thing to do is not just talk about it, but talk to them. Verse 15, if he listens to you, he says this, you've gained your brother or sister. And that's the heart of this whole passage. It's like we want the brother or sister back, man. Like, We don't want separation. We don't want division. We want to do the hard right thing in order to restore a brother or sister. This is what it's about, is getting them back into the fold. God, it's heart is always restoration, and it's this process that's driven by love. It's a process that's bathed in prayer. It's, it's pursued with grace and humility. It's, infer, it's affirmed by the community of faith. It's restorative in nature, and it exalts Jesus. It makes much of him. Like James, the half-brother of Jesus, puts it this way. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from his error, from the error of his ways, will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Like what a beautiful passage. Jesus goes on in verse 16. But if he doesn't listen, you go to him one-on-one. He writes you off. He's blows you off. He says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why does he say to do this? Because if I'm sitting there with my buddy and I'm like, dude, you got a big piece of lettuce on your your tooth. And he's like, no, I don't. No, you actually do. Um, No, I don't. No, you actually have a a piece of lettuce. Dude, I'm going to go get two other people. (laughs) Right? Does brother have a piece of lettuce on his tooth? Yes, he does. Well, now you've got other people that see what's going on. And the hope is, if you're living in community, if there's deep relationship here, the guy goes, wow, it wasn't just one person that called it out. Like, there's two or three people that actually see that I've got this. Maybe this is something that I actually need to think seriously about and address. The assumption is that if they listen to the two or three, then you win the brother over again. But then you come to verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, it escalates. And it says, now you tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, so I'll stop there. Like, what does this mean? Does it mean public shaming? Does it mean like, 
to, to hang their mugshot on the walls of the church so people can look out for them? Does it mean that you give somebody the scarlet letter? No, it means that you widen the circle a little bit more, that you tried one-on-one, they blew you off. Now you tried two and three, they blew you off again. So you widen the circle as you get shot, shot down. Now you brought the posse in, that didn't work either, they blew off the posse. Now you get the church involved with it. Now understand that when it uses the word church here, when Matthew uses this word, it's still this word ecclesia, but what's interesting is like the church hasn't even started at this point, right? Like it's not until after Jesus' death and his resurrection, then you've got the book of Acts and you've got the coming of the Holy Spirit and then the church takes off. And so at this point when he's referring to church, like we, I think it is a foreshadowing of what to come, but more than anything, what he's saying is like this is a committed community of faith. It's a committed group of people, the called out ones, the ecclesia. And so if they don't listen to the one, if they don't listen to the two or three, like bring it to the wider group. For us in this church, and I'll kind of end by kind of laying out some of our process. Um, when you get the church involved, I would say that's getting the leadership in the church involved. And so our church has appointed leadership. Um, we call them elders, overseers, they're shepherds. Um, they're under shepherds, really, under Jesus. Shepherds over the body here at Anthem. And elders are responsible to shepherd the flock of God. Like that's what their role is. And, and that's part of their calling as elders in the church. But elders are responsible to guard over the flock to which the Lord has actually made them overseers scripture says. And according to Hebrews 13, we as elders, there's six of us here at Anthem Coeur d'Alene, we're literally responsible to God for how we care for you. Like the Bible in Hebrews 13 says that we will be held accountable before God for how we cared for you. And so our role is to love and to support and come alongside of and to see you guys run this race well. And one of the things we realize here at Anthem is that a handful of elders, six of them to be exact, don't have the capacity to shepherd several hundred people, multiple families. And so we've hired this amazing staff of pastors to help us do the shepherding. And then we also have community group leaders that oversee community groups in our church. This is why we encourage you to get connected with smaller groups of people because none of this can happen in the confines of you running your own race and doing your own thing. You actually have to be connected to a group of people in order for this process to sort of play out, in order to invite people to come speak into your life, to challenge things, for you to have those relationships with them. The way it would work in our church is like if there was conflict between brother and sisters, like we would say, go to that person. I mean, we deal with this all the time as pastors here. Stepping into conflict and saying, have you talked to the person? No, go to the person. If that doesn't work, why don't you grab a couple people from your community group? If that doesn't work, now let's get our elders involved in the situation. The unfortunate part is by the time the elders get involved, it's usually flung so far out of control not unrepairable, but it's definitely harder to try to repair because most of the time the process wasn't handled properly. And very simply, it's like, go to the person. Like, what is keeping you? I mean, anybody in here notice that, um, how difficult it is to pray with your spouse sometimes? It's, like, it's hard. 
Because there's a spiritual battle going on that doesn't want you to engage spiritually with your spouse. And it's the same way in this setting. There's a spiritual battle going on that doesn't want you to engage the person that has offended you, to actually step into somebody else's mess and try to help them see their blind spots. Like there's a spiritual battle at hand because the enemy would rather you stay divided and not deal with it and it wreak havoc in Jesus' church than for Jesus' church to say, we won't take that. We'll actually do what Jesus told us to do. We'll go to the person. If that doesn't work, we'll bring two or three back. If that doesn't work, we'll get the church involved. And he goes on to say in verse 17 at the end, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, and listen to the statement, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So referencing back to that passage that I read at the very beginning, how does Paul define the Gentile? They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned in Christ. So the Gentile was somebody who was just not a follower of Jesus. And by this point, what it's saying is, if you've gone one-to-one and it didn't work out, you got rejected, You got two, three, you got rejected. You brought it to the church and you were rejected. This person isn't just rejecting what you have to say. At this point, you treat them like an unbeliever because they're not even willing to humble themselves to see the piece of lettuce on their tooth. And he's literally saying, you treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Now, I'll preface that by saying, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? With the utmost grace and compassion right? Jesus would sit and have meals with them to proclaim the truth to them. His compassion for them wasn't just to be nice. It was actually intentional because he wanted to win them over to become followers of Jesus. So for us, this is not about the church exercising Matthew 18 and being like, you unbeliever, like, get out of here. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with you again. This is actually about us saying it grieves us to put somebody out but understand the process that Jesus is taking them through because why is Jesus disciplining them? Why? Why does discipline exist here? Is Jesus' hope that the one would just get launched and that the 99 would be fine? Jesus' hope is that he'd go after the one even as it runs. That even in discipline, understand what the disciplinary action actually is. It's not them getting kicked out. The disciplinary action is disconnectedness from the community of faith. So the hope is as somebody is kicked out from the community of faith that what they recognize and understand in Jewish culture they would get this way better than you and I but what they recognize is I'm actually disconnected from the people that I love most. Like it actually would grieve them to not be connected with the people that they desired to be connected with. The people they loved the most that they labored with in life their kids were friends, their spouses, like their families were always together and then you remove them and the hope is that in their removal they acknowledge at that point, like I can't be away from you. And so I'm willing to repent and turn and come back and acknowledge the lettuce on my tooth because I wanna be restored to the family of Jesus. And that's the beautiful part about this process. If you've never seen this actually happen, it's one of the, I'm gonna tell you, it is the best thing 
as a pastor that you can ever see. It's the most encouraging thing because what you recognize is I can't do that. <laughs> like it's the power of Jesus that does that. And he goes on to say this in um, verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So these expressions that he uses, bind and loose, these were common Jewish legal phrases. Like they meant to declare something as forbidden or to declare something as allowed. And so it was the Jewish law that allowed or prohibited things. Like the law was the authority. But then when Jesus starts using these phrases in Matthew 16 with Peter, Jesus tells Peter that he will give him what? The keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus saying? There's an authority being given to my church. And in context of the passage we're reading this morning, what's the authority he's giving them? To take the forgiveness that's been granted you and to grant it to your brother or sister. To be the one to take the hard step forward to work through reconciliation and to not allow irreconcilable differences to ever exist in the community of faith. And we can't do that on our power. It's, he's given us the keys to the kingdom that we can actually bind and lose. Like, what an amazing thing by the power of Jesus. So what authority do we have? None at all. Who does the binding and loosing? Jesus does the binding and loosing. And so I want to wrap it up by reminding you of this. Um, I'd like to tell you guys that this has always been done super well, even in the context of our own church. Um, but I think you guys know better. Like, life is messy. Life is hard. Like, I would like to tell you that we don't ever have to have this conversation in Anthem, but the reality is in the last 12 years, it's happened. I, I wish I could be more optimistic about it, but what I can commit to you guys is that on behalf of our elders, on behalf of our pastoral staff, like, we are committed to care for the body the best way that we can. We're, we're committed to both encourage and to oversee and to care for and correct as needed. Step into the hard things whenever he needs because we believe that Jesus, by the power of his spirit, is in the business of bringing things together that no earthly being can do. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up here. We'll close in a song. Um, and I wanna pray for you guys real quick because I have no idea where you guys are at, how this text has ever been preached to you, shared with you, how this process has ever been enacted, if there's hurt or woundedness from prior experiences. But let me remind you this morning that God's heart is love. God's heart is redemption. God's heart is reconciliation. It always has been. It's why he leaves the 99 to go after the one, because he cares more about the one getting back in the fold than he does about the 99 that have things together. This morning, some of you are the one that he's chasing down. This morning, some of you are literally sitting there and your heart's beating and you're like, I know the person that I'm supposed to sit down with and work through some things with. And maybe God's just asking you to take the first step this morning because we shouldn't settle for irreconcilable differences. We should not settle for division because God has given us the authority to bind and loose. He's literally given us the, for, the ability to forbid and allow as he does through us. 
It's him who does this work. So let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you for this amazing truth that we get to rest on, God, that um, you are for us, Jesus. You are for the one that's ran astray, God. You are calling us to rise up as the body of Christ, to step into hard conversations because we just won't settle for division. And I pray, Jesus, whatever the situation, the circumstances in the life of anybody here this morning, that they feel prodded right now to go reconcile, prodded right now to go talk through a sin issue with a friend. I pray, Jesus, that your spirit would just envelop them, that you'd move through them, and that this process, though they be fearful and timid in following through with it, that you would take over and you'd actually arrange a miracle like none other they've seen before as they're reconciled to the people that they've been divided from. Lord, I thank you for your church, and I pray your blessing upon her today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.